words or glorious words to sing. Remain standing. Take out a copy of God's word as Pastor Logan comes to read with us now. If you would, take out your copy of God's Word. Turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 12. We'll be reading verses 9 through 26. Hear now the Word of the Lord. When the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of Him, but also to see Lazarus, whom He had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. Just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard what he had, he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some of the Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, The Father will honor him. Let's pray. Father, we we thank you for this glorious day that you have indeed made. We thank you for Christ. We thank you, Lord, that we get to peer into this historical event in which he rode into Jerusalem in triumph on a donkey's colt. We thank you for this moment when the Jews hailed him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Father, I pray that as we peer into this passage and consider its implications, Lord, that you would be working in our hearts, that we would say from the heart, Hosanna, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. God, that our hearts would worship Christ rightly, seeing him for the king that he truly is. So, Father, would you come and meet with your people through your word this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, 
Amen. You can be seated. Well, good morning, church. It's good to be back with you again. See a lot of red this morning. I'm sure some of you are excited about the big game tonight. A fourth trip to the Super Bowl in five years. That's pretty impressive. It feels a bit like deja vu. Like 2020, we are in another election year and the Chiefs are playing the 49ers. I hope that's not indicative of how the rest of this year will go. Now, you may have noticed I rarely talk about sports and the like in, in my sermons. Partly because I'm not from here. And I don't want to get booed in church like y'all did the Wes a couple weeks ago. <laughs> you Kansas City fans are intense. I remember the first year I moved here was back in 2015. It was when the, the Royals won the World, City, or the World Series. And for the longest time, I, I couldn't figure out what was going on with the water fountains. <laughs> what, was, what was the water blue for? But the whole city was turned blue. It was the water fountains, the lights, the decoration, everything. Everything was focused on the Royals. And after that series, an estimated 500,000 people, half a million people, had showed up downtown to celebrate at the victory parade. And then, of course, the same thing has happened when the Chiefs have won the Super Bowl, except the whole city turned red instead of blue, which is a really bad look for the water fountains. I don't know if they did that again this year, but but you guys take sports seriously. The city takes sports as, as, as serious as any city I've ever seen. And to be honest, it's, it's easy to get caught up in the excitement. I know many people who are not from here who are now diehard Chiefs fans just because of all of the excitement that's deeply ingrained in this culture in which we live, which is great. We as a people have a, a tendency to integrate and get swept up with those around us, which is all fine and well when we're talking about things like being a sports fan or things of that nature. But there is a huge danger to that tendency that we have as humanity when it comes to our faith, when it comes to following Christ. And the danger is that your so-called faith in Christ is really a product of getting swept up and caught up in what everyone around you is doing. Whether it's the influence of your friends or your family or, or just being in a church like this that takes the Word of God seriously or, or being in a Christian school like FCA. When following Christ is the culture in which you largely swim, it can be easy to just get caught up in it and to not realize that your faith is not really your own. That really you're just, a, you're just a fan of Jesus because of what is going on all around you. But the truth is, Jesus is not after fans. He is after worshipers who have come to Him in genuine repentance and faith because they have personally seen Him for who He is, the King of all. Well, today, as we continue in the Gospel of John, we're going we're gonna to see this play out on a huge scale, looking at one of the most remarkable events in human history, Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. I thought I was going to get to verse 26, but I was wrong. 
we're going to stop in verse 19 and just focus in on, on the triumphal entry itself. You know, given all the opposition, though, that, that Jesus has faced in this city for the majority of his ministry, the, the response of the people here is actually quite surprising. It's not at all what one would expect after reading the first 11 chapters of this book. And the question to be explored is, is why, why is that? Why this, this sudden shift? Where did this shift come from? Is it because these people have deeply considered who Jesus is and are, are coming to Him in genuine faith and repentance? Or is it because there's an exciting buzz around Him in the moment. Now, obviously, if you've been, att- been paying attention, you know the, the answer is the latter. And we'll see why that is as we work through this. So we're going to see this, this story unfold in three parts. We're, we're first going to look at the excitement of the people. And then we're going to look at, at how Jesus handles this, what he does, the statement that he makes. And then we'll look at some of the various responses to this event that John brings out. But as, as we work through this, we are, we are going to behold a rather sobering reality. And that is the truth that you can hail Jesus as King, you can acknowledge Him as the Messiah, and you can lavish praise upon Him in all sincerity and still be dead wrong. The question we must ask ourselves is, Have I personally come to Christ? Am I personally following Christ? Am I actually worshiping Christ for the right reasons? For who He is? Not merely for what He can do, nor just because of those around me, but because I have personally seen His glory and put my trust in Him. That's the question that we need to be considering as we work through this. So let's look at this. And let's first start with the, the excitement of the people. Look at verse 9. When the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So we're picking up right where we left off last week. Jesus is in Bethany on his way to Jerusalem. And remember, this is now the week of the final Passover. And everyone in Jerusalem is wondering whether or not Jesus is even going to show up to the feast because there was a threat of death upon his life. Well, he did come. And word had spread that Jesus had arrived in Bethany just outside of Jerusalem where he was enjoying a dinner that had been put on to honor him. And clearly, the the raising of Lazarus was now common knowledge among the Jews. Everyone had heard about this. As As we discussed last week, the topic of Jesus in his ministry and all that he had done, especially in his recent raising of the dead, was all anyone could talk about. And so, when many had heard that Jesus did, in fact, come back to Judea, and he was in Bethany, a large crowd of the Jews came to see him and to see the one whom he had raised. Now, Lazarus was now just a, just a walking marvel to everyone. 
I mean, every, every breath that he took bore witness to the power of Christ. And people not only wanted to see Jesus, but also the man who had, who had died and been brought back to life, which was working directly against the desires of the Jewish leadership. Look at verse 10. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The thing that these men feared was starting to come to pass. The news of, of Lazarus had spread. It was an undeniable miracle with, with countless eyewitnesses. And as a result, many were, quote, going away and believing in Jesus. The idea here behind this verb that John uses for going away is meant to communicate a change in allegiance. The Jews were now shifting away from following the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they were instead believing in Jesus. Remember, all through this book, John has used the term, the Jews, to speak of those who are in opposition to Jesus, those who typically stood with the Jewish leadership and opposed Christ. But now the, the winds have shifted. Allegiances have changed. And that is clear by the fact that the, the crowd is in outright disregard to the edict that has been issued by the Jewish leadership. Don't forget back in, in verse 57 of chapter 11, the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders to everyone that if they knew where Jesus was, they were to report it. Well, here you have a whole group of people who know where he is, and not only do they not report it, they are going to see him and to see Lazarus because they were believing in Jesus. And for that reason... The chief priests decided that the only way to actually put this to an end was not only to kill Jesus, as they had planned, but also to kill Lazarus. These were truly evil men. Which, when you think about it, is really a pretty foolish plan. I mean, this guy has been dead already. If Jesus had called him back from the dead once before, he could do it again, and that would not work in their favor. It would work against them. But as they say, sin makes you stupid. <laughs> and it does. But unfortunately for the Jewish leadership, it's, it's really it's too late. Things, things are already more out of hand than they even realize at this point, And that will become clear the very next day. Look at verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So this is now Sunday. This is what we refer to as, as Palm Sunday because of the events that are about to unfold. Passover is on Friday, and this being Passover week means that, that Jerusalem is packed. Again, this is one of the three feasts required by the law for the Jews to attend. Jews and proselytes, Gentile worshipers, would come from all over to make the pilgrimage to Jerusalem for this feast. Some estimate that there would be over two million people that would come into town. 
And if you've ever, if you've ever seen those, those aerial views of when the half a million people show up downtown to celebrate the royals or the chiefs, it's really, it's pretty astounding. It's, it's just a sea of red or blue, depending on who won. Well, multiply that by at least four and pack that into a lot smaller city than Kansas City. And that's what John is talking about. When he here speaks of the, the large crowd, the great crowd who had come to the feast, he's not talking about the same group who had came to Bethany to see Jesus and Lazarus the day before. He's talking about the mass of people who had come to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. Jesus has now departed Bethany to make his way two miles to Jerusalem, and the people, the great crowd, have gotten word he is coming. Jesus is coming. The one everyone is talking about, the man who can raise the dead, is coming. He's, he's on his way. And look what they do. Look how they respond. Look at verse 13. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. You see, the, the winds of allegiance and public sentiment toward Jesus has now clearly and completely changed. As Jesus walks towards the capital city of the Jews, the people not only ignore the orders of the leadership, but they rush out to welcome him in. Countless thousands upon thousands of them all caught up in the excitement, lining the streets and waving palm branches while declaring him to be their king and their Messiah. This is a big deal and a, a big moment, not just in Jewish history, which they never talk about, but in history, period. And this is, a, this is a good thing, right? I mean, this is who He is, the Messiah King. Well, yes, it is. This is right. But let's think through what's, what's going on here. First, why the, why the palm branches? What is the significance there? Well, unlike the Feast of Tabernacles, palm branches actually have no ties to the Passover itself. The law prescribed their use for the Feast of Tabernacles, but not the Passover. There were no traditions or rituals that, that tied that in with this feast. Yet, without formal orchestration, the people all grabbed these palm branches, which are everywhere in the region. The, the palm tree was very common, and they just begin to wave them at Jesus as he's coming in. Why? Well, by this time in Jewish history, the palm branch had actually become a nationalistic symbol for the Jews. Partly because about two centuries before this, during the Maccabean Revolt, Simon Maccabeus, Jew, had driven out Syrian forces out of Jerusalem and he was welcomed back in as a national hero with singing and praising and the waving of palm branches. 
very much playing off of the use of the palm branches in the Feast of Tabernacles, the waving of the branches just became a national symbol for God's victory and provision for His people. Palm branches were even found in some of the ancient coins for the same reason. The symbolism was strong. It was, it was so significant during this time that the, the people just immediately resorted to this act to express their belief that Christ is God's provided king who would supply them victory. And not only did they do it symbolically, but also explicitly, is they, they cry out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. This is a direct quote from what was read this morning, Psalm 118. A psalm of messianic expectation. The word Hosanna is a, is a transliteration of a Hebrew word, and it means something to the effect of God save us, or save us, I pray, or save now. Something along those lines. But it comes directly from Psalm 118. Verse 25 of Psalm 118 says, Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. And the very next line, verse 26, says, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. What the Jews were saying by waving these branches and employing this passage is that they believed this man to be the Messiah who would bring about salvation. This is the one sent by God, coming in the name of the Lord to save God's people. And if that wasn't clear enough, they even added their own line here saying, even the king of Israel. They are just lavishing him with the highest of praise, humanly speaking. Jesus' popularity and following could not have been higher than right here at this point and in this moment. But it is very reminiscent of what happened back in chapter 6 in Galilee when those Jews were ready to take him by force and make him king. But this far surpasses even that. But the problem with all of this is just like in John 6, though these people are ready to make him king and are explicitly declaring him to be so, they have no idea who he truly is. Not at all. They have no idea who the Messiah truly is, even though they are ascribing that title to him. They were not rushing out there because they had considered and embraced who Christ really is and what he came to do to save a people from their sin. They were not coming in true repentance and faith. Rather, they wanted Jesus for what they wanted him to be a national deliverer a national hero come to set them free from the Roman oppression and usher in a new era for the Jewish kingdom, an era of national strength and victory and peace and prosperity. Even though Jesus had labored among them now for nearly three years, teaching them of the kingdom of God and who He is and why He came, they all still missed it. They still didn't understand. 
They were not trusting Christ as Lord of all, as King of kings, as God in the flesh who came to save from sin. Not at all. And for that reason, their fickle allegiance that has blown in quite suddenly will evaporate just as fast when they come to the realization that He is not what they want Him to be. That He is not what they're hoping for and He will not give them what they're hoping for. This is why at the end of the week, the cries of Hosanna will turn to cries of crucify Him from the very same crowd. This is why no one truly comes to faith by mere excitement about what Jesus can do. That is not true faith, and it will not sustain you. Jesus spoke of this when he spoke of the parable of the soils, that there are some represented by the rocky soil who receive Jesus with joy and spring up fast, but they have no depth of soil, no root has gone down because they came superficially. They did not see Jesus for who He truly is. They did not see their own sin for what it truly is. And they did not come in repentance and faith. Just superficial joy over what He could do. Which is what's going on in this crowd. Now Jesus knows this. Just like He knew it in chapter 6. But His response this time is very different. Listen again, listen to what he did in, in, in chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 15 says, Perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Jesus was not going to let them make him king falsely in chapter 6. But in opposite fashion, look how Jesus responds this time. We have seen this crowd. Now let's look at how Jesus handles this. He makes a a statement here, not with his words, but his actions. Look at verse 14. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. In stark contrast to what he did back in chapter 6, withdrawing from the scenes, retreating to the mountains, this time not only does he not withdraw, but he embraces what's going on. And he even heightens it. And he does so by fulfilling one of the long-foretold prophecies about the coming Messiah King from the book of Zechariah. But the problem for Anyone who would recognize what's going on is is that the king of that prophecy does not match the Jewish hopes and expectations that this crowd had for Jesus. The king that Zechariah speaks of is, is far greater than just some mere national hero. Far greater ruler than just the ruler of Israel. And he brings a far greater salvation than a political one. In fact, if you would, flip over there with me. I want to read this prophecy, and I want you to look at it as I do. Zechariah is basically the end of your Old Testament. It's two books before Matthew. So if you go to Matthew and you just go back a couple books, you'll be in Zechariah. 
We'll be in chapter 9. Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 through 11. It says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. As you can see, this king of whom Zechariah speaks is far greater than a national hero. This is a king whose rule extends from sea to sea to the ends of the earth. This is, in fact, the ruler of the world that he is speaking of. And he comes to set prisoners free from the waterless pit. That's actually a callback to what happened to Joseph when he was thrown into a pit by his brothers without water, a waterless pit, a most dire and helpless situation that would surely lead to death, from which God rescued him. God lifted him up by his providence. In the same way, Jesus has come to set the captive free, but not from what our fellow man has done to us, but from a much more cruel oppressor than that. He has come to set us free from our own sin. In our sin, we are truly in a dire and helpless state that will lead not just to physical death, but to eternal death. And we cannot help ourselves. We need someone to come Rescue us up out of that pit. And notice verse 11, that this freedom comes through the blood of His covenant. An obvious reference to His coming sacrifice. This is why when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, Matthew 26, He he took the cup and He referred to it as my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Unlike the old covenant, it would not be the, the blood of bulls and goats, but it would, be the ratif- it would be ratified by the blood of the Savior, the blood of this great ruler, of the King of kings, on behalf of His people. And in so doing, this king will bring peace. He will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, a reference to the cities of the divided kingdom of Israel and Judah, This king will end their divisions and create peace, not only between these divided brothers, but to all nations. He will speak peace to all nations as he unites every tribe and nation and tongue into one in him and establishes kingdom of peace over the entire world. A part of this prophecy that is still to come. But what is remarkable is that this king of kings... This ruler of the entire world is coming into Jerusalem, the great city, humble and riding on the colt of a donkey. He does not show up on a war horse with an army of multitudes, but rather he comes 
is a mere carpenter from Nazareth riding in on a donkey with his band of 12 disciples. Only in the wisdom of God. He uses the foolish things to shame the wise. By mounting that donkey and riding in, Jesus not only embraced their praise, but he showed himself to be something much more than any of them could ever imagine. Even though the crowds didn't get it, and their fickle faith will flee by the end of the week, there is a rightness to what we're seeing going on here. This is God's Messiah. This is the King of Israel. This is the one who has come in the name of the Lord. This is the fulfillment of Psalm 118. What they are saying is true. But per usual, as in this book, the crowds were speaking and behaving better than they even knew by the very providence of God. And so Jesus does not reject their praise. In fact, so much so that in the parallel passage from the book of Luke, when Jesus rides into the city on, on the cries of Hosanna, it says that in the crowds were some of the Pharisees, and they yelled out to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples! And Jesus replied with, I tell you, if they are silent, then the very stones will cry out. Such is the glory of Christ. Jesus is so worthy that if His image bearers who are lining these streets do not rightly praise His name on His way to His passion to die for His people, then the rest of creation will. The very rocks will begin to cry out. Because this is, this is no ordinary king. This is the king of glory. You know, the fact is, no matter what you do with your life, no matter how successful you are or how much you achieve, even if somehow you, were, you managed to broker peace in the Middle East and end world hunger, at the end of the day, the greatest thing you can possibly do with your life is worship and praise the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no greater act that man can participate in than that. Sadly, all this praise and excitement around Jesus fell short of what it actually ought to be. These people were saying the right things. They were doing the right actions. They were quoting the right psalms. But they had the wrong meanings. And they had the wrong motives. They did not truly realize who it is that they were praising. But other than Christ, no one knew that at the time. No one understood the statement either that Jesus made by mounting this donkey. Not even, not even his disciples. Look, look how everyone responds to this, starting with his disciples in verse 16 says, his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. In looking at this response, John starts with the disciples. And by that, he means, he means the twelve. Jesus' chosen twelve disciples. And even those men 
as they watched and, and participated in this. And the other accounts tell us that they are the ones who actually retrieved the donkey for Jesus, and they even laid their coats on it for him. So they were, they were not just passive bystanders in this, but they were, they were active participants. But even they did not understand what was actually happening. Now, they, they understood what was going on with the crowds. They understood what the crowds understood. They understand that he was being embraced as the Messiah and the King, and they're, they're all for it. But they did not understand this prophecy of Zechariah chapter 9. They did not understand that that was beginning to be fulfilled before their very eyes. Now, we can read that only negatively and focus on the fact that they, they didn't get it in the moment. But that is to miss the significance that they did come to understand these things after Jesus was glorified. Because not everyone did. But the disciples did. Minus Judas, of course. And there are a couple of very important reasons for that. One is, is obviously, by that time, they would have the, the benefit, the advantage of hindsight. They watched Jesus die they were eyewitnesses to his resurrection and his ascension. They saw Jesus ascend back into the heavens, and they could now rethink through everything that happened in light of those events. Obvious advantage. But the truth is, even that wasn't enough for them to truly understand, to truly see the glory of all of this. There is one more significant reason why after Jesus was glorified, they could now see things rightly. Does anybody have an idea of what that is? It's the Holy Spirit. As Jesus will tell these men, and as we will dig into later in John 16, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And then he said, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he speaks not out of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me. For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. You see, these men understood these glorious truths about the person of Christ after He was glorified because God continued to reveal His Son to them by His Spirit, as He does for all who truly believe, who truly trust in Christ, who are following Christ. This is why the Christian life is not just about being a fan it's about receiving a revelation from God concerning the truth of who His Son is and being brought to your knees in worship as you realize that there is nothing more glorious than Him. But even beyond that, it is a constant growing in that knowledge by the Holy Spirit as we continue to behold Christ in His Word, seeing more and more of His glory and growing more and more like Him in His image. Even the disciples went through that process, and so are we. 
There's no room for fickle allegiance here. This is the Lord of glory. Now, yes, the disciples didn't understand everything at that time. They didn't get it. But they were truly following Him. They loved Him. They believed in Him. And God revealed His Word more and more to them in time. And by contrast, the crowd was just excited about what He could do and what he, they hoped that He would be. And that excitement continued on. Look at verse 17. It says, The crowd that had been with Him when He called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised Him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet Him was that they had heard He had done this sign. So the, the smaller crowd that had been there when Jesus called Lazarus back from the dead continued to spread this, this excitement about what Jesus could do. And they had been so effective at spreading this news that it was, in fact, the very reason why the mass of Jews went out to meet Him. The triumphal entry was a direct result of the raising of Lazarus. Just like in John chapter 6, all that happened there was a direct result of the feeding of the 5,000. And Jesus told that crowd back then that they were following Him not because they understood the sign when He multiplied the fish and the bread, which pointed to Him as the bread of life, but rather they were following Him because they had eaten their fill of the loaves. In the same manner, this crowd does not understand the sign of raising Lazarus from the dead, that it was a pointer. That's what signs do. They, they point. They're not an end of the, of, to themselves. They, they point. And it was, it was pointing to what Jesus had told Martha, that I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. That's what the sign was about. But they were not after him for that. They were after him to leverage his power for their earthly gain. And when they don't get what they want, they will turn on him. Like the wind. As fast as it blows in, it's going to blow out. But that being said, in the middle of all of this, from the perspective of the Jewish leaders, this, this whole thing, this whole event is their worst nightmare. Now, they don't know this crowd is going to turn on him, which is why they respond the way they do. Look at verse 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. The, the panic is, is setting in. They are losing control and they feel it. Their plan is not working. No one turned him in when he showed up. And all the people actually embraced him as king, which they fear will lead to the Romans coming in and just wiping out everything. Now, obviously, when they say that the world is going after him, that's a, a clear exaggeration spoken by those who are in panic, but they are, they're, they're really just speaking about everybody who is at the feast. But once again, John shows that, ironically, their, their words were truer than they know, because the whole world, every nation, will go after him. And it's not unintentional that the very next paragraph is about some Gentiles, some Greeks, who show up and say, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. 
He truly is the king of the entire world. As we conclude our time, I want you to reflect on all of this. I want you to think through this for your own life personally. Where are you with Jesus? Are you here Sunday after Sunday because you are a fan of Jesus? You show up to watch the big game. Maybe you crack open your Bible here and there to review some highlights. You root for Jesus and you take pride that you're, in fact, on the winning team. But you're excited about what he can do and those around you who are excited about him. But that's about it. That sums up the nature and the fullness of your religion. Is that you? Or maybe, for you who are younger especially, you who are growing up in this environment, do you call yourself a Christian because your parents do? Your friends do? Your teachers at school do? And because of that, you really can't even conceive of being anything but a Christian. It's all you know. But in reality, you have not made it your own. You have not made Christ your own, and you know it. You basically have a second-hand Jesus. You know him through those around you, and you're caught up in everyone else's excitement, but you don't really know him yourself. If either of those describes you, you need to hear this day that you are missing it. You are missing Christ. Going through the motions does not put you in the camp. And for that reason, your soul is in danger. You will not last. The shallowness of your root system will be revealed at some point in your life. When the trials just become too much, or you become disappointed and disillusioned with God, who did not give you the life that you'd hoped for or keep you from the tragedies that you most fear. Because in reality, what you ultimately want is not the king himself, who is worthy of all of our worship, but you want what the king can supply, a good life. If that's you, I beseech you this day to remember how short and fragile your life really is. It is here today, and it is gone tomorrow. Why would you live this, this life for what is temporary when you can have the eternal king? And you can have him. He is rich in mercy. And even this day, he extends forgiveness and pardon to any and all who will come to him in repentance and faith. Even if you've played the hypocrite, he will forgive he will pardon. He will wash you. You need Christ. Not because He will give you what you want in this life, but because He is worthy. And He's the only thing worth living for. And He's the only source of true salvation. And for those of you who truly come to Him, and for those of you who have come to Him, what we're seeing here today is actually not something that we missed out on. 
Sometimes you read that triumphal entry, and you're like, man, I would love to have been there, to be a part of that, to cry out, Hosanna, his Christ is coming. You didn't miss out. Because we are all going to be a part of what this event is pointing us to. A far greater event when we are all gathered before the throne. I'll finish with this. Listen to our future from Revelation chapter 7. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every tribe and every nation, all peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell down on their faces before the throne, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Every one of you who believe will be there for that. You haven't missed anything. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you for your glorious Son. Thank you for his kingship over the entire world. Thank you that our elder brother and our Savior is also our King, and He rules over all. Thank You that this great King did not leave us in the pit of our own sin, but He laid down His own life, shedding His own blood, that we may receive pardon and be brought into the kingdom of God. Thank You for this King. Thank You for Jesus. In Christ's name.